Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. And hello out there to all you Brooklyn folk and beyond. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan podcast the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners, in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And I've been ramping this stuff up lately, uh, even though I haven't done enough activity online. And so uh, we welcome you to really what is the first spring podcast of the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. And without further ado, let's welcome our guests that are going to help navigate the springtime waters of both Brooklyn and the Dodgers, and we're going to start uh, out in Illinois with uh, somebody who spans many different Dodger generations, and that is Rob Barnes. What is going on, Rob? How are you? I am fine. Thanks, Sam. Uh, I'm good, healthy, enjoying, uh, enjoying the coming spring that's happening slowly but surely here in Illinois. Looking forward to baseball and a good conversation tonight. I was good. Thanks for asking. For sure, and uh, we're going to go out to the borough of Brooklyn, Bensonhurst specifically. Uh, he does not shy away from the fact that he is a Brooklynite through and through, and that is the Brooklyn trolley blogger, Mike LeCoan. What is going on, Mike? Hello, Sam. Hello, Rob. Pleasure to be speaking with you again. Uh, what's going on? Life. Life is going on. Let's talk. Well, let's talk, and, and this is where we're going to start. Uh, before we get into the baseball side of things, I wanted to just go to the Brooklyn side of things when it comes to spring. So, Mike, uh, starting wherever you want, what do you think about, other than baseball, when thinking about springtime in Brooklyn? A lot. A lot. But I will say, whereas the calendar says one thing, Mother Nature ultimately has the final say. And you know when the cherry blossoms start blooming, it's springtime, you know, and, and it's time to uh, get the season in full gear and everything else after a long, cold winter. But uh, here in Brooklyn, it's unavoidable. It's unmistakable. The cherry blossoms really signal the inauguration of spring. Uh, and then there's everything else. Uh, the next, the next word I would I would use is busy, busy, busy like bees. Uh, everyone's busy after, uh, like I said, a long cold winter. Uh, you know, I drove by Coney Island the other day, and behind the locked gates, everyone's busy preparing for the season to come, and things of that nature. And I have a few friends, and and they're model enthusiasts cars and planes and here in Brooklyn at Floyd Bennett Field you know these guys have been home all winter tinkering with their toys perhaps building from scratch you know replacing parts or whatnot but again getting ready for the season ahead so it's busy I have housework to do uh spring means dirt turning my dirt in the backyard getting ready for the grown season 
You know, so I'll leave it at that. It's busy. Busy indeed. And we're going to go out to uh, Rob for the Dodgers' perspective of everything. And, and you know, you always want to start in Dodger Town, and I think you are correct. I mean, when, when you think about spring training and the Dodgers, that is the place uh, really where to start. Uh, you know, there's many different parts of Dodgers' springtime history. Uh, but please, Rob, start there. Well, where do you start? Right. You, of course, everybody immediately goes to Dodger Town. The, the, the springtime or the winter home, as a lot of people call it, the, Whitler, the winter home of the Brooklyn and Los Angeles Dodgers from 1948 to as late as 2008, 60 historic-filled years. But if you want to go a little before that, you can look at where they trained before, okay? It happened, you know, before. They, they, obviously, spring training was happening before Dodger Town came about. And I'm on a very, very uh, good site, uh, WalterAlmalley.com, you know, the villain of the story. But his, his website is full of facts, full of information, full of pictures, full of everything. And, his, and the Dodger Town timeline. Starting in 1901, up until they landed in Vero Beach, they uh, trained everywhere from Charlotte, North Carolina, Florida, Augusta, Georgia, all throughout Florida, a bunch of different places, New Orleans for a year. And then once Robinson was signed, it became critical that they kept him protected. So for 1946, they were in Daytona Beach, but 1947, his rookie year, they went to Havana, Cuba. And if any of you have seen the movie 42, which I'm sure you all have, any of the listeners have not seen it, it is just an incredible historical uh, storytelling of, the, of Jackie's story, the, the story of them going to, to Havana and being training there for a year just to keep keeping Jackie out of, out of the media circus and out of the bigotry of Florida. And then they came back after, his, after his, his rookie year. I was going to say freshman year. After his rookie year, they went to Dominican Republic just to keep him out of, out of trouble again, as well as some of the other African-American players they had had, such as Dan Bankhead. Uh, uh, Roy Campanella was with them by then. And then 1948, Branch Rickey heard from Bud Holman, uh, a Vero Beach businessman, about this abandoned naval air station in Vero Beach that would be an incredible potential spring training site for them. And that's when Dodger Town was started and formed. And it's lovely that it's still there, just uh, kind of preserved now. Um, if you can tell us a little bit about the transition, the transitional history of uh, Dodger Town. Certainly. Certainly. So, as, as, like, as I said, it was a, a naval air station, so it had runways, it had barracks. So when, when the Dodgers first came there, it was very Spartan. It was very, very, very military-esque because everything was, was left over by the military. You've heard Carl Erskine on your show uh, many times reference Dodger Town. They had, I believe they had as, up to as many as 600 players in camp. 
Each different level would wear uniforms with different color numerals on them. So if you were in class D, you would, for example, you would have class, you would have orange numerals. If you were in class C, you would have a different color, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That way, everybody was kept close by. You could be moved from, 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 from uh, team to team. And it also kept the internal competition hugely because you see everybody, all these players saw, oh, my gosh, there are all these other players here. So they were driven to be their best. They were. And over the years, Dodger Town uh, evolved, got better. Once Walter O'Malley took over the Dodgers, and he started investing big into it. He wanted to make it this, this winter home of the Dodgers. The barracks were replaced. More, more clubhouses were built. More fields were built. Duke Snyder used to tell a story he told at the Dodger Fantasy Camp about how when he would go onto the outfield, sometimes, you know, you go, a, a, a ball would be hit. You know, a lot of times they didn't have fences. A ball would be hit down a, down a berm into a, into, a, into a gully, and you'd put your arm up for a ground rule bubble, and you'd be careful. He said, you'd have to watch out for snakes because there'd be snakes in these gullies. <laughs> so, and he also told a story about how they would sneak out at night to go to, to movies in, in Vero Beach because there wasn't much to do. And having to bring a baseball bat to beat the snakes off because there were just so many of them because it was really a very uh, barren and Spartan area. Oh man, that's just it, it's fascinating to hear. And I'm going to go to Mike next on kind of bridging the two. Obviously, uh, you don't get the Dodgers without Brooklyn, and you don't get Brooklyn without the Dodgers. So, Mike, take it away. Wow, uh, you're right. And if you think about it, this is a case in point where necessity is the mother of all invention. As Rob brought up, you know, segregation, racism was still running rampant at the turn of the last century. You know, uh, pre-Grapefruit League and pre-Cactus League, teams were widely dispersed throughout the South. That was spring training. Arkansas, Texas, Mississippi, Alabama, you name it, Georgia. Uh, and, and then spring training evolved, and, and you know somebody one, one team I forget it, it is it escapes me at the moment, but one team set up camp in Arizona. Teams started flocking there. Teams started flocking to Florida, and that was the advent of the grapefruit grapefruit league and the cactus league. And here you go, Vero Beach and Dodger Town uh, once again. They're at the forefront of history. So, <laughs> Rob, uh, you mentioned Cuba. Let's go deeper into that. Um, and I think we have to start with the Ernest Hemingway story. I don't know if it's ever been told verbally out loud on this podcast. And I am sure you've read every Dodger book and – every Dodger book that has that story. So is there any way that you are able to tell to our listeners who might not know about some of this spring training history, the story of Hugh Casey and Ernest Hemingway getting into a drunken brawl in Havana? Okay. You actually got me a little bit. I'm actually doing a little bit of research tonight right now. And Hugh Casey had a very, very, troubled life, a troubled career. A relief pitcher, he, I'm looking up right now, his one loss record was very pedestrian, 75 and 42 with a 3.45 earned run average. 
So here's what. Uh, Hugh Casey. Hugh Casey was on the mound in 1941 when the Dodgers were inches away from going ahead in the World Series against the Yankees in the World Series. He threw, this, he threw a pitch that he thought was a spitball. He says Mickey Owens says it was a spitball. Casey says it wasn't a spitball. It got away. It allowed, I believe it was Tommy Heinrich, to reach first base. The Dodgers would have won, had, it, had he got the ball, caught strike three, it would have, the Dodgers would, I think, would have gone up 3-1, end up losing the game, the series turns, they lose. That's only 1941. Who knows if that had any effect on all of the other times the Dodgers got together and, and the Dodgers got together and, with the Yankees and lost. But that obviously hit hard on him. He became, he always had hard troubles with alcohol. He drank and partied hard. And when they were in Havana, he partied hard with none other than Hemingway. So I do not know much more of that. I apologize. That is one little aspect I'm a little, I'm a little lax on. So I'm going to turn it back to you guys. <laughs> By all means. So um, it, I appreciate, you know, it, it, I appreciate the honesty with it. And, and I, I will try my best. Uh, before passing it back to Mike, who might know this story or might not, but you know, That's above Hemingway was <laughs> well. So Hemingway apparently was very uh, liked going to the games and made friends and talked, yeah, of course. Um, and somehow Hugh Casey got uh, to Hemingway's place that evening, and they were drinking mm-hmm. into the night, and then Hemingway if I can remember the story. It was very well told, especially in the bums in oral history of the Brooklyn Dodgers book by uh, Peter Golenbuck. Golenbuck. Um, but apparently he challenged him to a brawl, just a straight-up brawl. And Hugh Casey was a very shy guy in many ways. Sometimes he, 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 he had a southern attitude and, and, and a good personality. But, uh, you know, he... he he didn't basically show much, apparently, where her, Ernest Hemingway, of course, was very in-your-face about everything, and especially in the drunken state that he was. Um, and so he's coming for, for Hugh, and I think is you know, Javin, and then Hugh just completely destroys him. <laughs> just throws him to the ground. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. A bunch imagine. of stuff goes everywhere. Uh, so then, and this is at spring training Havana. Let's just make sure we're, we're, we're on point. Um, so, uh, according to part of the story, I think it either happened on the first or second time, his wife, Ernest Hemingway's wife, who was in, in the other room, heard the commotion, comes out, looks down at everything, doesn't say anything, and just turns and goes back into the other room. And <laughs> then uh, either the fight continued, but that was, the, that, that was the highlight of the story for me, was the wife basically being like, oh, this is par for course. <laughs> and apparently the next day, Hemingway was very apologetic in person to Hugh, just like, I don't know what came over me. <laughs> you know, as, as you can imagine, Hemingway sounded. Anyway, back to you, Mike. No, I, again, I'm only slightly familiar with the story about him in Havana and whatnot. So, that, again, that's above my pay grade. I'm not going to add to that. 
Well, I, I just I love that Havana, you know, it, it, it puts from the perspective of, of our current mindset of Cuba, it, it's so interesting to think of a world which uh, many a setting happened uh, for Havana back then with, you know, no uh, issues from the relationship of the two countries, mostly, um, uh, uh, you know, and, and it's just, yeah, go ahead. I speak of that in football terms. They somewhat got intercepted, you know. Uh, <laughs> so nice. uh, I, I'm sure things will get back to the way they once were once upon a time uh, because uh, baseball, Cuba, uh, and America own a very distinct and unique relationship at the turn, you know, of the 1900s. Uh, and we, we need to get back to that place again because uh, – Cuba is so passionate about their baseball. Uh, what they did to their game, I do not begrudge what they did to their game when, when Fidel Castro nationalized it and, and banned professionalism. Uh, the model he put in place is actually uh, very unique and, and, and structured if you delve into it. You know, but what their system prevents them from doing is an entirely different issue. Uh, but I would like to see uh, America and Cuba get back to that point where they, they, they were once upon a time insofar as baseball, because uh, there was a unique relationship there. Uh, a, a very, uh, another unique relationship existed with the Cuban X giants and the Cuban giants for that matter, or more so the Cuban X giants. And we're going back to, you know, the 1901s uh, through 1910, 1911. I think uh, they made their first trip to Havana in 1909, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but that that was after uh, a gentleman from Cuba brought his all-stars here to America. So, you know, I, I would just like to emphasize there's a, there's a rich history, as you say, Sam, uh, of baseball in Cuba and here in America as well. Yeah. Um, it, it's something that you, you sometimes forget within the scheme of things, you know, that it, it, it seemed as if by now, especially with Obama trying to freshen relations, um, that, Rob, you know, you would have seen maybe some professionalism at this point, but it seems that it, it wasn't going to go as fast as uh, you expected. Most definitely not. And, well, you keep talking about how things change, you know, with, with, with relationship with Cuba, relationships with Cuba, you know, starting in the 90s with the, the emigrating from Cuba in the, in, the, in the rowboats making the 90-mile ride, fighting, doing whatever you can with up to people like Yasiel Puig paying thousands of dollars to be basically smuggled out, you know. So that's, that's, that is a way of things coming around. But, you know, Fidel, now that Fidel's gone, or Fidel is gone, you know, it's maybe things will change, maybe things won't. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, you know, um, what is it? Uh, Joanna Cespedes' uh, brother is somewhere out there, but uh, we'll have to see how it is. Uh, getting, you know, back onto uh, out of the Cuban digression, um, it, 
just, just thinking, Mike, about the Dodgers. Let's go. Let's go upstate for a second. And, and uh, do you know anything about the Dodgers in 1944? I think it was in Bear Mountain. Uh, again, that's something I heard, and I never, you know, took time out to find out and investigate and educate myself on. Uh, no, I, I, I can't say much about that. Uh, conversely, I will say that the Dodgers were, I believe, the first major league baseball team to go to uh, Cuba, uh, and that was right after the Cuban ex-Giants, if I'm not mistaken. But Bear Mountain, uh, I was aware, but again, uh, I'm not, I'm not that educated on that. Uh, Rob, uh, uh, you know, just knowing what you know about Dodgers history, what do you know about? You know, obviously the Warriors, the lean years yes. for Branch Rickey, you know, uh, heading up to the slopes. You know, there's photos out there uh, of of the Dodgers with their, their skis on. <laughs> like, how is this I, exactly I, a place for spring training? Yeah, well, exactly. You try to get out, you know, you want to be at a secluded place at a camp. I believe they had an armory from my readings, going back to the word, the book bums, right? You talked about bums and immediately hit some, and a little bit of Googling hit some, hit some triggers for me in your last story. But what I, what I recall from my research about Bear Mountain is, you know, like you said, mountains, ski, march, obviously it's not going to be the same as it is in Florida. Duke Snyder tells the story, told the story of, the late Duke Snyder told the story of, Going to Bear Mountain, I believe it was the first year he was signed. Coming from Southern California, Duke Snyder barely had an overcoat, less, let alone warm clothes. He t- I remember him telling stories about getting to Bear Mountain and absolutely freezing. He thought, what in the world had I gone to? We're training in Siberia, basically, is what he's thinking. So for, for a kid from Southern California, he was probably 19 years old then, going there to being just completely underdressed for the elements. And like I said, I remember uh, there, uh, like, you know what a big armory is, you know, the military built these big, big, uh, basically indoor stadiums for military drills. And a lot of them were used for athletic endeavors. And they had one there for a mountain. And a lot of the, uh, a lot of the drills were done in there as well as outside. Leo DeRocher was the manager then a couple of his books that I've read uh, give some reference to it, and and that that's that's about my knowledge on it. Yeah, you know, it's it's these little details, especially the war years, that you you just want to get a little bit more, in, you know, information on because everybody focuses on the boys of summer, Mike. You know, and, and this is what I'm trying to go through, is finding all these little details to add that will help shape what I hope to be a properly cohesive story. Agreed. Uh, devil is in the details, as they say. And, and, you know, the more you invest into revealing these details, the better off you're going to be and the better your product is going to be, uh, without a doubt. Uh, so nothing ventured, nothing gained. And I, I learned a long time ago, the worst question you can ever ask is the one you do not, you know? So I think you've done a, a super job to this point and I expect no less 
moving forward. Uh, you know, I, I'm in on your research. I, I, I'm aware of it. I'm reading it. I'm on top of it. And uh, I like it. <laughs> and I think the audience will as well. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I didn't mean to make it a love fest uh, so quickly and, and, and so hastily, but much appreciated, Mike. And, and going to you, Rob, this is where I want to go with that. Spring training Pete Reeser. Spring training Pete Reeser. Okay. Wow. Pete Reeser, as as your listeners hopefully know, Pete Reeser, uh, he had the tools in him. He may have been one of the first, quote-unquote, five-tool player, a phrase that is used now much more than it was used back then. Hit for average, hit for power, field, run, and and slug, I believe, is the fifth. But it's basically an all-around incredible player. Pete Reeser came into Dodger Town and just proverbially hit the cover off the ball. Like he, like he basically did everywhere when he wasn't injured. He turned so many heads going in there. It was, what, it was like, I believe, an 18- or 19-year-old that, you know, it's like, it's like how do you keep this kid down, but you want to keep him down just, just because he's not ready, right? So when he's ready, he makes his progression up through the minor leagues. But everybody knew as soon as you saw a Pete Reeser in spring training that he was the real deal, and he had the tools to be it. And if it weren't for his injuries, lack of, lack of field knowledge, yes, we all know that he ran into walls because there were no warning tracks that caused him to have suffered grave injuries that basically stopped him from being the Hall of Fame player that he that he sh- certainly should have been. He certainly should have been. And what's even more interesting about the um, the, the, the stories of, of spring training lore with Pete Reeser, Mike, is the fact that Branch Rickey and Larry McPhail had made a deal after Landis, uh, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, had released a bunch of players from the Cardinals' farm system because he basically just didn't like what Branch Rickey was doing with this whole newfound farm system, making deals with teams that was slightly illegal. So he said that Pete Reeser was going to be one of these players. And this was really the only player that Branch Rickey cared about. And so he made a deal with Larry McPhail to try to bury him in the Brooklyn Dodgers system. And when I hear this, you think to yourself, how could Larry McPhail be so sloppy? How could Branch Rickey be so sloppy to let him get into the hands during spring training of Leo DeRocher? It happens. It happens to the best of them. Uh, we know Branch Rickey had an eye for talent. That's undeniable. Uh, but he also factored in, in quantity. And sometimes, you know, that singular individual gets gets uh, lost in the mix, you know, uh, and perhaps that's what happened in this instance. In this instance, uh, what I will say is, you know, as Rob alludes to, he was a local hero. No, no, he was a baseball god, lowercase g. He really was. And don't forget, 
He helped the Dodgers win the pennant for the first time in a long time, since 1920. So, you know, uh, fans were, were, were chopping up the, uh, uh, at the bit, you know, and he came and he helped fulfill that. Uh, and, you know, uh, he made a big impression that never faded. Another Pete Reeser story. He, I, it's one of the injuries, and, and it, it's it's one of the ones I think in like early 1941. Um, but he wakes up from the injury. I think it was a, a beanball, um, hit in the head, and wakes up in the middle of the night. First time he's remembering anything, and he starts walking around, looking around, you know, messing around. And he goes back to bed, and then the doctor comes in the next day and says, you have to be here for examinations for the next week. Uh, you know, he's laying in bed at this time. And uh, he says, doctor, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm fine. And he's just like, no, if you try to get up right now and walk around, you're, you'll completely collapse. And he says, uh, if I get up and walk around, will you let me go? And, and the doctor says, you're not going to be able to do it, and he does, and he tells him that he was doing it in the middle of the night. Um, and I think this also leads into the first time he wasn't supposed to be put into a game, but Leo told him to dress just to make the guys feel good and then put put him into a game later on. Just from all these concussions, uh, Rob, you know, somebody's, I guess, got to be the poster boy, but Pete Reeser is arguably the number one reason Maybe not for helmets, because they were starting to develop helmets before they had to worry about Pete Reeser. But, and those are some other stories, but not necessarily tied to spring. Pete Reeser is. Uh, with Pete Reeser, you know, probably the reason for walls, for being cushioned. Uh, you know, the, the initial reason, uh, other than just generally thinking that's a good idea. Um, Pete Reeser was a big reason why both Larry McPhail and Branch Rickey tried to develop some protective stuff in the 1940s. Oh, yeah. Uh, the first batting helmets were coming, came out of the Dodgers system. They first started with a lot like your regular wool hat. They tried a liner in that. That wasn't as not enough. Eventually, you know, the plastics came around in the 50s. That, it evolved to that. Warning tracks, as I said earlier. And as you were talking about that, I thought about, two. Uh, you know, Crosley Field in Cincinnati had the sloped up to the wall. I can't remember if they had a warning track there or not. I think that may have been their, Cincinnati's, idea of a warning track. Because as you're running back and tracking a fly ball, you feel yourself going up the hill. You go, okay, you're going you're to immediately go, okay, wait, there's the, the wall's coming up. But Spatial relationship. I know it's, it's it's easy for us to say it, you know, 70 years later and say, oh, come on, you got to know where the wall's coming up. But no, you're in the heat of the battle. You're you're running full blast at a, at a speed that he could run at. A world class athlete such as Pete Reeser running full out at a fly ball towards a left center field or right right up whatever. There's got to be some some sort of give to it, and and you're and you're right, definitely about padded walls. That was definitely a Dodger innovation because because of not only him but others. 
Certainly others. Uh, you are listening to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, and uh, we're going to go back to Brooklyn. Mike, let's let's go around Brooklyn for some more spring stuff. Like, what what are you what are you getting going in a non-COVID year? What what what's going on right now? If you're a Brooklynite, you know what? It's been a long year. People have been cooped up you know, much longer than just the three months of winter. They've been cooped up. This is effectively a a one-year anniversary here locally. Uh, It was this month last year that my wife, you know, uh, was made to work from home and a lot of other people. March, you know, of last year started all that. So we're here at the one-year anniversary, and things are easing up. I remember... Back in the fall, heading into winter, you know, there was a lot of jokes being made about the curbside eating, things of that nature. Well, here we are. Winter's gone. Spring is here. And, you know, I'm all over the streets of Brooklyn. And guess what? All that curbside eating is 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 going on. Uh, the places are packed. People want to be out. It's been nice. And we're at the point where it's going to stay nice. Uh, you know, so... Uh, with the vaccinations, wearing a mask, and I, you know, Sam and Rob, I just want to uh, congratulate my my fellow New Yorkers, my fellow Brooklynites. Uh, we chatted somewhat before the show. We're not going to get into it, but uh, on TV, all you get is the extremes. There's no such thing as moderation, uh, and I just want to. Again, congratulate my fellow Brooklynites because for the most part, everyone's, you know, playing along, you know, wearing their masks. Uh, uh, to me, the arguments, the incidences, uh, confrontations have been far and few, if any. Uh, I can recall only one. I think that says a lot. I can't recall two over the last year uh, that you know, a situation degraded to the point where you had two people yelling and a confrontation had it. So I just want to congratulate my my fellow Brooklynites here. Uh, everyone's in compliance. Everywhere I go, everyone's wearing a mask. Everyone's, you know, playing along and helping each other out. And uh, you know what? It, it's it's emoting a, a nicer and a kinder and a, and a gent, gentler uh, side of people. You know, I, I, I sense a lot of politeness out there. Uh, on a daily basis, you know. So what's going on? You know, me personally, back when I was coaching, I'd be winding down basketball season now and and starting baseball practice. By now, uh, traditionally, I would have had at least two practices by now trying to get in shape for uh, the Little League season to come. But uh, for me, uh, I used to like bringing – my son, when he was a kid, to the Prospect Park Zoo in spring. Again, you were cooped up all winter. Uh, there's things you do in the winter, like go to the movies and inside things. You go to the museums and inside restaurants and shows and things of that nature. But spring, you want to be out. So I always thought that the Prospect Park Zoo was a good place to start. And like I say, Coney Island, uh, come April, when the gates open, you know, that place pops. And and we know there's a there's holidays coming up. Uh, there's Easter and Passover coming soon. And to me, uh, 
when the, when those days hit, that puts the itch in my feet to get me running over to Coney Island uh, for some reason. Because as a kid, me and my cousin, uh, an uncle, perhaps two or three, they would take us to Coney Island right around Easter time. And that stuck with me. Uh, and I still like to, uh, uh, you know, follow along that tradition today. So right around Easter, give or take, you know, before or after, uh, that's when I like to uh, punch my ticket into Coney Island and say hello. Uh, but there's a lot of other things. But like I said, it's a busy time, and people are just itching to get out. And like I said, you know, i got to get my backyard ready for growing season. i got to turn my dirt and uh, get it ready for the tomatoes and everything else, you know? Hey, I like that you're, you're you know, using spring for what many people are, which is planting. And, and it, it says a lot about the different environments that are in Brooklyn um, and the different Americanas that are in Brooklyn as well. I think there's some some places you would be walking in Brooklyn and not know that you are in Brooklyn if you are a random American being in any random place. Uh, that That is what I love about Brooklyn. <laughs> Sometimes all you have to do is cross the street. Right. And, and the neighborhoods are so, exactly. you know, markedly different. All you have to do is cross the street sometimes. So, Mike, what is a corner that you love crossing the street and seeing two different places? Uh, that's a loaded question. Uh, you know what? For all us basketball fans out there, I'm going to have to say Flatbush Avenue and Atlantic Avenue. Home of the Brooklyn Nets, uh, profession, <laughs> professional sports in Brooklyn, you know. So I have to go that route. Uh, first home game since 1957 when the Nets came to town. You know what I mean? Well done, well done. I love the pitch. I love the shameless plug, Rob. Um, talk about Brooklyn. Talk about Brooklyn. My 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 experiences of my like five or six trips there. Mike, you referenced Coney Island several times, and I have vivid memories of going to Coney Island. Not in the springtime, in the summertime, and in, and and in the fall. It is really a magical place. Seeing having seen seen it from afar, from his, uh, in its gritty days, from the, I don't know if you guys remember the movie The Warriors that came out in 1979. <laughs> That's when I was a senior in high school, seeing that movie and seeing a very gritty Coney Island, and then finally getting there, uh, finally getting there in the early 2000s, and after it had had its rebirth, and just enjoying the boardwalk, enjoying the surf enjoying a summer day there and then coming back again later in the decades after the Cyclones were born, going to a Cyclones game and just imagining what it, what it would have been like to have actually seen a Dodgers game in Brooklyn, just being able to experience that, sitting in that stadium, Keyspan Park, I believe it was called then, I think it's still called that, sitting there just knowing to myself that I am watching baseball in Brooklyn, having known all this history of the Dodgers and there's 60, 60, 70 years there, and having known the ending of that story, but having seen the rebirth there, was re- is, it still is a really incredibly neat, neat experience that I have had. 
Uh, I'm 54, so I am very familiar with the Coney Island of the 70s and 80s and when the Warriors movie came out. I will say very, very frankly, if you were a local, you knew how to negotiate it. If you weren't, not so much. It could have been an assault to your senses. Uh, Warriors come out and play. Fabulous. You know, but as a local, you knew how to negotiate it. Uh, And I never had a bad experience at Coney Island. Child, adolescent, grown up, or, you know, at the present time. Uh, But you're right, Rob. It it has undergone a renaissance. It's a great place to be. And Sam, although it's not going to happen for us this season, hopefully next season, we're going to have a historic game at Coney Island. Are they not uh, welcoming anybody in at all? Welcoming in what? This year, next year, what do you speak of? The Cyclones. Are you are you implying the Mets are going to play a game there? No, no, I'm no, 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 no. The, the the Brooklyn Cyclones this year. The minor league season is going to start in May, which uh, they pushed okay. back because of COVID protocols. Because they're full season Next, now, correct? Oh, oh, right, so I see what you're saying. So, so, but like, yeah, are people okay, going to be I'm able to be there I, in May? I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry if I, if I was too vague. Yeah, they pushed this season. And yes, they are a full. Uh, a full season A team now, high A, uh, whereas they right. used to be a short season that started up in late June. Now they're going to be full season. So this season here still locally, New York State, they pushed the season back a month into May for opening day. Uh, so next year, hopefully, fingers, the season will start on time and a, Brooklyn, a, a team in Brooklyn will play in April for the first time since 1957. Yeah. Nice. Yes, excellent. So, uh, there, but in May they're going to welcome like a certain amount of people, correct? Uh, yeah, uh, I think that's you know still to be determined. But I'm sure there's going to be people there. It's just going to be a question of how many. We already know that you know Yankee wow. Stadium and City Field are going to open up with 20 percent capacity. I don't know what protocols they're going to be asking for here in Coney Island for the park itself and, and for the ballpark. Uh, I'll, I'll find that out, but, you know, let's see. Well, it's interesting, Mike, because I was, I was going to lead, um, lead with the fact that at least uh, we're going to have spring Brooklyn baseball games for the first yeah. time since 1957. Yep, yep. So, you know, we get to see them finally raise the flag, the championship banner. From 2019, which they, you know, were unable to do last season. There was no season. So this season we'll get to celebrate. That's right. And they will forever Mm -hmm. be the last New York Penn There you go. Oh, wow. uh, Wow. So wait, what league are they a part of now? Well, that's part of that new, bland, vaguely named uh, Eastern High A. I don't know if and when they're ever going to get around to giving it a more colorful name, but that's what they're going by for the moment. 
Uh, so Eastern the New York Penn League is gone? A. New York Penn League is gone. All okay. those traditional names that we, you know, grew accustomed yeah. to, and, and yep. they're gone. The Pacific Coast League, the Texas League, uh, you know, the South Atlantic League, the Eastern League, all those names are defunct. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on. I'm sorry. The PCL is gone? Yeah. All those names, the names, the league names are defunct. In a lot of situations, you have many, if not most, of the teams that were in those circuits returning, but with new and different entries. Some teams went, uh, uh, excuse me, like some independent leagues are now part of the minor league circuit, whereas some former minor league teams are no longer part of the circuit. So they've been changing. So here's my question, though. Sorry, sorry if I keep interrupting, uh, but here's my question, though, for either who wants to pick up. Branch Ricky III was the president of the Pacific Coast League. Do, is he still that? Mm. As a, they may still be incorporated, but they are now a former minor league of Major League Baseball. They're free to pick wow. up, you know, with new teams for whatever millionaires out there want to, you know, form their own league or whatever the case, they still own the name and the rights to the Pacific Coast League, but they're temporarily inactive. Hmm. MLB has, has put uh, one umbrella over minor league baseball. Now every team has four affiliates. And that relationship is going to stay in place, I believe, for the next 15 years. So there's really no guarantees after that. Wow. But if you're outside of the bubble, you're just that, outside of the bubble. If you're inside of the bubble, you're safe for the next 15 years. For instance, here locally, the Atlantic League, which is an independent circuit, the Somerset Patriots are now the Yankees' AA affiliate. Uh, there's one one the uh, one of the uh, American Association independent teams is now a double A affiliate for one of the Midwest teams. Uh, I just forget which. You see, but there's been uh, a, a hopping uh, a, a cross section of uh, of leagues coming under this new MLB umbrella. And it yeah, was like rather cold hearted. Yeah. It was a rather cold hearted move. And if you're on, if you're outside the bubble, you know MLB is like, well, it's been nice, but it hasn't been real nice. Bye. It's, yeah, my local team here in the in in my town, I live in this western suburbs of Geneva, Illinois. We've had an affiliate uh, of, of low A ball called the King County Cougars for yes. 30 years, and they're gone. Yes. they're now they're, they're still right. there, but they're now they're now uh, one of the affiliated leagues. They're in the American Association. And right. I, my and, my guess oh, is that, the, and, and well, at least at least they're in something that like I mean the American yeah. Association I believe goes all the way back still if that's the same well, American and, Association. The American Association is presently independent, has been for thirty, forty years, something to that effect. But before that, you know, it was a minor league that MLB 
drafted players from before the uh, the draft as we know it today. You know, minor leagues had a different relationship with Major League Baseball back then. And I believe, Mike, it, I believe uh, that is the way it's going to be now. I believe MLB teams and lower eight, uh, minor league teams can draft players from this American Association. Yes. The team here is, is billing it to us fans as it is going to be a quote-unquote better experience because before we were considered high A, now we're, we have players that are considered double A and triple A players. So, so in theory, the baseball will be better. Uh, yes, in most cases, in some cases not. Some teams, yes. for instance, uh, the Yankees, uh, Tampa affiliate, they got a demotion. Whereas they used to be high A, now they're low A. They got right. a demotion. Uh, and the Brooklyn, mm-hmm. well, Brooklyn's got getting a uh, Brooklyn got a Brooklyn, Brooklyn at least got a got promotion. A, got a promotion. Right. right, right, because it's Brooklyn. They should get a promotion. Guy. This is right, <laughs> and this is what. And 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 I like the fact that like they decided to stop. Although I think Staten Island got shafted, correct? Yeah, uh, they're gone. Correct. Out in the cold. Yankees yeah, left them out in the are, cold. Are they with anybody now, or are they just gone? Well, here's the problem. There's no such thing as a team. All they do is own the name, and they have the lease on the stadium. An independent league team is more than welcome to come here, and the Atlantic League wants that. The problem is the owners of the Staten Island Yankees still own the lease on the stadium, and mm-hmm. no other team is going to operate under that you know, condition. They want their own lease. So for as long as the quote-unquote uh, Staten Island Baseball Company retains the lease, nobody's going to come to Staten Island. Unless they work out, you know, you can always work out a deal. But oh, they'd have uh, who's going to come under off. those conditions? Right. No, but like, exactly. who would want to? But what what team is going to like all of a sudden the Red Sox and be like, ha ha ha? I don't know. I don't you know, get it. Uh, you talking well, about stand- a smaller economy? It's not like a major league baseball team that you just come into town and, and buy somebody out. You know, uh, independent league is is hard knock. You know that's not a major economy. If the Dodgers, that they have going. Could, if the Dodgers head in there and go, uh, where the 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 uh, Staten Island Dodgers now. <laughs> they could have moved there the whole time. Yes, they could have. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a lovely stadium. Nobody ever saw yeah. Staten Island. There was probably plenty Nobody of room. Thought... Well, you oh, know what? I, I mean, I attended. I attended Staten Island games. Why? Because it was easy for me to do, and I like going to different games. But if you listen to most people who live in Staten Island and who wanted to see the Yankee games, they complain about they complained endlessly about the ownership and the way they let the business deteriorate. The food was horrible, and all the construction around the stadium just killed off business. Period and outright. So I could see why the Yankees ran from there. Uh, like their hair was on fire. Uh, I think baseball you, will eventually You mean come like back like because home. like people are people, like apartments are moving into St. George, like they're building like more apartments over there. No, it has more to do with the improvement of the ferry terminal, and they had grand designs of building a Ferris wheel like they have in London uh, that never came to fruition, and just you know uh, obscene visions like that that 
and, and outlet stores and things like Not so much residential, uh, more commercial and, and business-type ventures. But it, it killed business. Well, uh, it killed parking, and that's what dissuaded me from going in recent years. Uh, otherwise, I would have been there a lot more, but they completely ruined the parking situation. And, uh, you know, I could only imagine how locals felt. I know how some locals felt. Uh, but, you know, uh, they did a poor job of running the team. And I don't necessarily begrudge the Yankees or blame them from walking away from that relationship. Well, it, it, it sounds very unfortunate. Um, and, I, you know, I hope they can figure something out and, and, you know, whatever. I guess there's a season to possibly be had. Um, but I guess they they technically – uh, under uh, and that's what I don't understand about what happens with non-affiliation. I guess it it's it's something for a whole other podcast because uh, I, I do want to shift uh, uh, back to a little bit more of the the history of of things. Um, Rob, I'm 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 going to go to you here, and I'm maybe I'm uh, this is a cop out in some way, but where do you want to take? Spring training Dodgers. Want, well, spring training Dodgers. You know, every, Dodgers, we, we talk about we talk about Dodgers. We we talked about Dodger Town. We didn't talk about it a lot. There's a couple of neat things I just want to point out that I'm not sure that everybody is aware of. A couple of things with the biggest thing I think is cool is if you talk about being a kid back in those days in 1954. The Dodgers set up the Dodger Town Camp for Boys, which was a summer camp that you could spend, I believe it's two months at Dodger Camp at Dodger Town, living in the barracks, training with not only baseball coaches, but training with basketball, training with track. I believe they had football as well. Basically, imagine being a being like a ten or twelve year old kid having to go away to this camp for the summer to be able to play at the place where your heroes train and be immersed in the culture of, of the Dodgers for two months. And unbe- I don't know if, any, if, if your listeners are aware as well, but it was run by a young Peter O'Malley. That was his, one of his first tasks in the, as a young man growing up. He was able to do that. So that is just really amazing. And the development, as we talked about a little bit over the years, uh, the architect, Emil Prager, who designed Holman Stadium down there, named after Bud Holman, the, the, the guy who basically worked the deal out for the Dodgers to come to Dodgertown. Uh, he is actually the same architect who designed Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles. And so that's kind of a neat tie-in as well. And it's just... The tradition, it, the place dripped with tradition when I was able to spend two weeks there as a, in doing a couple Dodger camps before they left. The place just dripped tradition from walking around a corner and seeing that the street signs that are named after all the Dodger Hall of Famers, seeing Campy's Corner by the minor league clubhouse where he would come out and hold court with all the Dodger catchers during his years after his accidents is just simply amazing just to have had to walk those walls. And it's just, I mean, I could talk for hours about it. 
<laughs> well, I might take you up on that at some point, right? Um, Fine by Mike. me. <laughs> uh, Mike, what do you know about Dodger Town? Uh, not so much Dodger Town. I was going to go even further back. One of my favorite spring training stories ever involves Casey Stengel. Uh, I don't know if it was spring training 1916, 15, 17, one of those. Uh, but it's when he famously said, Uncle Robbie doesn't like me. And that stuck. But that's spring training. I don't want to take the show down the gutter. He was feeling a little ill, and he was keeping it from Uncle Robbie. And what happened? Casey Stengel contracted a case of the clock and was keeping it from the team. See if I can fit that into the true, series. True yeah. story. Uh, I have. I wrote about it. I have the link. You know, so I'm not making it up. I could email these guys the the, the newspaper article and the story, uh, the write up on that story. But yeah, that's what happened. I mean, before. Wait a uh, second. There's a confirmed news article about. Stengel having the clap? <laughs> yeah. Well, he admitted it. He admitted it uh, to a team. Yeah, and he was he like, did. of course he did. Of course. Yeah, and he was like, you know, let's just keep that between you and I, please. <laughs> and, and that's when he paid us to say, I don't think that, he's like, I don't think Uncle Robbie likes me. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I will email you guys the link. You'll get a great kick out of it. Oh jeez! Oh I, I, I man! Think, you know, well, if if any if anybody, you know, uh, if anybody was to cross the the cross of athlete meets meets rock star, it was Casey Stengel. And so let's let's go in a, a Casey Stengel direction. You know, um, what I love about Casey Stengel's story is that spring training with the Dodgers can be connected from from the t- the teens of the 1900s can be connected all the way to uh New York National League baseball in 1962 and a little bit onward in terms of his managerial status uh and throughout that he also wore a Giants uniform and he wore a Yankees uniform and he was basically pictured in all four New York teams it, it, it's you know Daryl Strawberry was able to get both the Yankees uh, all, all four excuse me the Yankees the Mets the Dodgers the Giants but obviously did not get the New York part there uh, Casey Stengel has some interesting status Rob on uh, New York baseball history you, I mean, you said it very eloquently and, and hit the nail on the head, Sam, because, like you said, his from the Dodgers to the Giants to the Yankees to the Mets, I mean, in, truly incredible for historians of the game as we all are. That is, I mean, what, what, that's almost like a Mount Rushmore type thing because with being able to say he was associated with all of those franchises and not only associated but i mean 
uh, a superstar manager with the Yankees, you know, a, a pretty darn good player. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't all-star capable caliber before there was an all-star game, but he was serviceable. He more than well, more than well could handle a bat. He more than well could handle his glove. And he had his famous day of having the bird on his head and doffing his cap and it flew off at Ebbets Field. Casey Stengel uh, created an entire persona when it comes to the Messies, 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 Mike. Um, I don't necessarily need to get into legacy talk right now, um, but I think that Casey Stengel was the Metsies before there even was Metsies when he was dressed in a Brooklyn Dodgers uniform. Uh, he was the right guy for the job, no doubt about it. Uh, he was less a manager and more of a salesman. He really needed to push this Metropolitan's project forward. He was the perfect guy. Nobody knew New York better. Nobody knew the fan base better. Nobody knew the local temperament better than Casey Stengel. One can argue that. You look back on his career with Brooklyn, Upper Manhattan, the Yankees, and then ultimately with the Mets, uh, I think Joan Payson was very wise to seek him out. Uh, was he available? Sure. Was he familiar? Sure. Was he convenient? Maybe. Uh, but let us not under underspeak or underestimate Joan Payson's baseball acumen and therefore her decision to hire Casey Stengel. He was the perfect guy for the job. Because, uh, again, you have a professional Major League Baseball team in their first ever season, but what, what does that mean? They don't have a minor league system. They have no AAA players, AA players, single-A players. That all needs to be built from the ground up. Uh, so in the meantime there was Casey Stengel, and I think that speaks for itself. Rob, would way, you say, based off of... I, I just emailed you guys the newspaper article. It was in 1915 <laughs> spring training at Daytona Beach. So read it to your oh, enjoyment. Oh, man. Uh, I can't wait. What, 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 uh, <laughs> what paper was it? The Daytona Beach? Was it the Daytona Beach paper? Uh, hold on. Uh, the, uh, the Florida History Network. That's where I got it from. Oh my God! An article really by fun. Denny Bowden. <laughs> Casey Stengel was a Daytona Beach troublemaker. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. He was. He was. So. So, uh, you know, outside of, you know, an unfortunate event for Casey Stengel's uh, uh, sexual career, if you will, um, <laughs> from, 
From the perspective of managerial career, Rob, think about Casey Stengel with the Dodgers in the 1930s. It, and, 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 and think about it had, had he gotten – had kept the job, had, had just kept the job and just been like, you know what, we're going to see it through. And then basically they came to give Larry McPhail the team just when Casey was, like, coming into his own. What, you know, there's – basically my question, Rob, is did Casey get shafted? Probably. You know, you know when, when, when new ownership comes in, what do you want to do? You want to make a change. You want to make a splash. You want to put your people in charge. But sometimes stability can be a really, really good thing, especially when but, there but are, let me just there throw are it out so there. many other we're not even talking about new. We're not even talking about new ownership. We're just talking about the same McKeever crew that had been there since – the Ebbets family didn't really take over in the 1920s when Charlie Ebbets died. So mm-hmm. it's not exactly like new ownership. It was an unstable ownership. There you oh, go. yes, unstable. Yeah. And then I, I spoke out a term that, that maybe new general management running it, but had he stayed, oh, <laughs> Hindsight's twenty twenty. considering the, you know, obviously he had a stacked, stacked team when he was, when he was hired with the Yankees, you know, when he came in, in what, 1948? I mean, they were stacked. They were coming off of, you know, they had, they had all that talent. Had he had the Dodgers and been able to develop the talent and grow as a manager and grow as a motivator through the late thirties and into the early forties when the Dodgers flashed up a little bit for those in the early forties, who knows, they could have been that the, the, the whole, the whole course of history would have been changed obviously and probably for the better. But at the same time, Mike was Leo destined to become manager of the Dodgers. Well, we all know Leo had a way of making himself known. We know that. Uh, you know, let's not forget that after Charlie Ebbets passed away, ownership, they had more problems than a math book insofar as making decisions. We know that about them. Uh, and let's not also forget, Casey wasn't afforded the best roster. When Larry McBell came in, he performed a, 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 a quick, change. He transformed that team very quickly into a contender and then national champion. Uh, Casey didn't necessarily benefit from that. And, you know, to know Casey's personality, uh, I think we also know that he was a very fireable person. He was hard to get along with. He was cocky. And, you know, a lot of managers, then and even now, in their first go-around, in their first job as manager, sometimes, if not usually, it doesn't go very well. Uh, we know what kind of managerial career lay ahead, but this was his first job. And, you know, 
you could be pragmatic and say he never achieved a 500 record, but I, it had more, I think, to do with Casey's personality because he was an easy person to part ways with if you didn't know him or if you didn't want to understand him. Sure. But he had that moment in 1934 where he was able to kind of have the last laugh with the main rival of the Brooklyn Dodgers. Couldn't he have a little leeway there, Mike? As a rookie manager? Let's have an honest discussion. What rookie managers are afforded that kind of an opportunity? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I can't argue with that. I can't argue with that, you know. And uh, it it happened the way it did. Burley was able to get some time in, and um, he's an interesting uh, character in the script that I uh, I have going right now. <laughs> Even though he's basically uh, Rob, he's basically in one and done. And and uh, segue out of this any way you want. With Burley and Casey. <laughs> well, you know, Burley's brought in 1937, and what is brought in 1937? Green and white, or green and green uniforms for the <laughs> one year. <laughs> now, now, here's the thing. Right? Well, it's interesting you mentioned the uniforms before you continue, uh, because what I realized what is terrible about them, and I, don't, I can't think on, off the top of my head any team other than Greensboro, which is also a character randomly uh, of a team and uh, a, a minor league team in my uh, my thing, and I think they had green uniforms. But they they don't. You can't have green uniforms on a green field. <laughs> no, you're right. There's not a lot of green in baseball. That is a very good point. But and well, and it's obviously it's, it's pre-television, so that's that's a whole other way to go. But green uniforms was an experiment for one year, and obviously it did the team nothing. A new manager, new uniforms, and the green was quickly retired for the 1938 year season, when perhaps another un well, I'm sure a lot of people you know that are listening to it are are hip on their Dodger history when Babe Ruth was brought in to be a coach and also to help attract some fans to watch him hit home runs and batting practice before, before where the babe had visions of becoming a major league manager where no owner would touch him with a 10 foot pole. And he, at least he was able to, you know, at least he was able to say he wore the Brooklyn Dodger. He was the Brooklyn Dodger uniform for a year. And it's pretty cool. And I have the bobblehead to prove it. <laughs> You know what? I sent out on uh, St. Patty's Day, I think it was, uh, that green jacket. And I think I do want to purchase that at some point in my lifetime. Uh, the Brooklyn, the, it just says Brooklyn across the uh, the chest. That would be fabulous. Uh, green no. jacket that uh, probably the manager wore. Uh, now, Mike? there's a particular player, there's a particular player who wore that green uniform in 1937 who was born and raised right here in Brooklyn, Sam. Wait Hoyt, Erasmus mm. High School. Mm. Uh, a prolific mm. semi, semi-pro ball player as well. Uh, played throughout Brooklyn uh, and engaged in many exhibitions uh, against the semi-pros and Negro League teams back in his day. 
but right here from Erasmus High School on Flatfish Avenue and Church Avenue. Born and raised, born September 9th, 1899 in Brooklyn, New York. How sweet is that? Now, now, Mike, Mike, if I can ask you real quick, what is in the middle of Erasmus High School? What, what, what is that? That is uh, from like the 1700s, I believe. What, 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 um, what is that, that right is there that's so historic? That is correct. Uh, unfortunately, I've never been able to get through those gates at Erasmus. At Erasmus. Uh, they remain locked. Every time I go there, you know, there's nobody around to ask. So I've never gotten <laughs> in. But, yes, that building uh, dates back to the 1700s. And you have to remember that right across the street is one of the original uh, four Dutch churches here in Brooklyn. And that was all part of it. That was one of the original sediments of Brooklyn. Uh, and I think that particular building served as I don't know government function though back in the day uh, Brooklyn was incorporated or founded what 1634 so by the early 1700s that building that building is in place uh, but I've, ne- I've never gotten you know close enough to inspect it I, I know it's in poor condition and there's an effort to raise money to improve it and you know give it a facelift uh, just as they're doing with the church across the street, one of four remaining in the borough back from the Dutch settlement. Uh, but that's what's going on over there. There's a plaque out in front that uh, describes it exactly. Uh, I'm not about to go into my files now and, and retrieve that plaque and read it to you. Uh, but it, I, it served the government purpose. Yeah, and, it, and it's back from the early 1700s. It, it's um, it's just such amazing history and that's what I love about the Brooklyn overall history, the Brooklyn, the Brooklyn. If anybody wants to look that up, uh, Brooklyn, which is the perfect New York way of shortening Brooklyn. And that's how it's basically spelled and pronounced Brooklyn. There's a, there's a basically Brooklyn gets rid of the Brooklyn. It says Brooklyn. Uh, we got rid of the we got rid of the e's and the u. <laughs> no use for those. <laughs> Brooklyn, it's Brooklyn. I don't want to hear any of that Brooklyn stuff. It's Brooklyn, all right. <laughs> I no, but like it can't be. It's I. It can't be even all right. That's that's where that's my Manhattan, and that's that that's basically uh, Manhattan, but pre-Manhattan, it was West Palm Beach and Richmond before that. So that's where the you know, I have to be doing a character to get to get the full accent going, unless I'm driving and talking about the Mets, as I like to tell people on, when I'm a Lyft driver. But anyway, um, so the <laughs> – Mike, what was I talking about? Anything you want, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Rob, Rob, take us, take us away. Take us away. Well, where do we go after that? About accents and dialects and, <laughs> you know, tele- how television just like... We went, so, we went the so full history of Brooklyn right there. We went right. the full <laughs> history of Brooklyn right there. You whipped around. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I told you, this, 
I told you the story when I was in the army in basic training, you know, I tried to say as little as possible because I have a thick accent. I, I try to, you know, be conscious of it. And, but it, I know I, I, I'm aware of it. So, you know, once the drill sergeant got over my way, he was like, Hmm, where are you from? Oh, I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> here we go. New York drill sergeant. Where in New York? I'm like, fuck. Oh, sorry, Sam. I'm like, uh, New York City drill sergeant. He's like, where in New York City? I'm like, ah, oh, here we go. Brooklyn drill sergeant. He's like, I knew it. Drop and give me 20. And, you know, uh, he just had fun at my expense. Not that I uh, didn't have fun alongside with him, but it, it was fun. But, you know, <laughs> it's something I didn't want to divulge because I knew you know, it was going to warrant some attention, un- unnecessary attention. I knew it. He says, I knew it. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> well, I, I think let's, uh, we'll bring it, we'll loop it back around to spring, and that's how we're going to finish. Uh, we're, we're basically, that, that, you know, that, that's, it's, it's about hope springing eternal. And even though we know the Dodgers left and there, there could be arguments that they shouldn't have, it is how it is, and they took the Giants with them. Um, so, Rob, before we go around to the last word, uh, what would you like to say on spring in Dodgertown? Spring in Dodgertown – for having experienced it up close and personal is simply amazing. It's, it's like you say, it's rebirth. It's coming out of a long winter, whereas in down there in Florida, they never really get winter because they're lucky up here. You know, you guys have it. We have it out here in the Midwest. Just being there is just, I look at my two weeks that I spent there and I still say, take all the family stuff out of it. My family, if I want to be personal and selfish, it's the two best years of my life, all family, family stuff aside. It is still there. Dodger Town is still there. It is called the Jackie Robinson Training Complex, appropriately named. It is run by Peter O'Malley. It is amazing. I have not been there. I'm, uh, I'm hoping to go there this winter for, a, for another camp that they're having. But if you ever ha- get in Florida in the Vero Beach area and driving down the east side, go see it. Drive around it, soak in the atmosphere, imagine where the heroes, the boys of summers, walked, imagine where they played, imagine just soak in the history because it's there and it's still, and and thankfully it is still there and you're able to walk the grounds. Beautiful stuff. And, And Mike, springtime in Brooklyn. Takes on new meaning. You know me, Sam. I love living in the past. I can't get enough of it. We've spoken of the war years, the Brooklyn Dodgers, 1941. But for me, there's also a team called the Brooklyn Americans. Hockey. Brooklyn. Professional. Big league town. Fast forward. Like I said before, the Brooklyn Cyclones, they're still yet to hoist their championship flag. And right now, as we speak, there's a collection of basketball players that play on Flatbush Avenue. 
that perhaps has never been seen before in the NBA, insofar as the vast collection of them. Uh, it's a unique situation. Some they're paying for, some they're not. That's why they were able to put it together. But they're on course, we hope, to, towards something special. And you know how cities win championships in bunches, you know, when you know, the baseball team and the football team and the hockey team or the basketball team, they all win a, a championship in the same year, uh, like transpired in 69 here locally and in 73 with the Knicks and the Mets, you know. Uh, I like to flirt with this idea and try to think that in this new neo-age of Brooklyn professionalism through the Nets, that they have a collection of people that potentially can win a championship here in Brooklyn in 2021 on the heels of the Cyclones winning a championship in 2019. And again, you know, back to the Warriors, the Dodgers, the 41, and the last year of the Brooklyn Americans, the only year of the Brooklyn Americans. To me, spring is suddenly taking on a new meaning. Because right about now, the end of March, beginning of April, NHL, NBA seasons are winding down. And the playoffs start, you know, soon thereafter. So that's what I usually feel in spring. But with COVID... And the way we've had to conduct life, society, and sports, you know, things are different. But I got this vibe, Sam, that Brooklyn is in the midst of one of those championships, be it minor, be it major. I don't care how the outsiders look at it. But I know here in Brooklyn, I'm having a ball. And I can't wait for the Cyclones to get back on the field. And I can't wait to see the rest the way the rest of this NBA season unfolds here in Brooklyn on Flatbush Ave. Mike, I... Spring. Spring in Brooklyn. Uh, (laughs) I love it. Mike, uh, shameless plug before we go. The Brooklyn Trolley Blogger. That's it. That's my home. That's where I root for my teams. Even if I'm not a fan, I'm fair and impartial. I like writing about all New York City area sports, and about my life here in Brooklyn. It doesn't necessarily have to be sports. The Brooklyn Trolley Blogger. Obviously, it's a little spin on the Brooklyn Trolley Dodgers. You know, so that's where my heart is. Uh, I like to delve into history, but I'm always, you know, writing about the here and now. A little of, a little of both, a little of everything, a little of all sports. And, you know, just another way of me revealing my personality here in Brooklyn through sports. It's a beautiful website, and uh, I'm so blessed to know you, Mike. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Rob, Rob you, Barnes. <laughs> yeah, of course, man. I love you, man. Uh, Rob Barnes. <laughs> love you. Um, I love you, too. <laughs> I can't leave that out now. But, no, seriously, though. Uh, Rob, I... I what I want to know from you, coming off of a world championship year that was weird, what is your last word tonight? My last word, first and foremost, thank you again for involving me in your, pro- in your research process. I am humbled to be able to add my knowledge 
to help you in any way, shape, or form. It's always a pleasure to be here and chat with you, both you, Sam, and you, Mike. It's always fun. It's, I'm always learning stuff. I'm always having cobwebs in the back of my brains brushed off. I'm always intrigued, and, I, and you're never too old to learn. You know, it's, it, it's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. You said about the 2020 Los Angeles Dodgers, with that strange year, everybody, you know, some people say, oh, it doesn't count. It counts. And they won more postseason games than any team in history. And they played under circumstances that were beyond bizarre that nobody in their wildest imagination could ever believe. And the 2021 Dodgers are set to make a run to become the first team to repeat since the Yankees of the early 2000, what, 99, 2000, 98, 99. So, you know, I'll be watching. I've got my MLB TV paid up, and I'm looking forward to it. And once again, thank you both, gentlemen. It's always been my pleasure, and I'm humbled to be with you. Likewise, bro. And thank you, Rob, and thank you, Mike, for joining us tonight, and thank you all out there for listening. It it is always a pleasure, and uh, I can't wait to continue to bring these podcasts to you as well as everything else that we're uh, we're trying to do. Uh, There's more to come soon. Thank you, everybody. Take care, and happy springtime. Have a good one. And let's go Brooklyn. There you go. I love you, Sam. Love you, Mike. Love you, Rob. <laughs> love you, Sam. Love, love you, guys. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. A lot of fun. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VDW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.